to download the app if you don't have it. And if you don't have the app, uh, it's so important for following along with this message because I really believe this is a word from heaven for us today. We have been shocked at what has happened in our nation. Uh, we've, been, we've been taken by surprise with the coronavirus. Perhaps we shouldn't have been, but we were. We've been shocked by what's happened with all of the protests that have just continued on and on since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And I just was praying this week, and I said, Lord, I, I just, would you give me a fresh word? And I always pray that for us, that God will give us a fresh word. I remember hearing a, a preacher say something as a young man that made a profound impact on me. And he was talking to us as young preachers. He says, never serve your congregation stale bread. Be sure that the messages you preach are like warm bread pulled out of the oven. And I've always prayed that way, but I just felt this desperate need for a word that hopefully others that are listening and following along with us could, could benefit from as well. And I want to talk to you about, and I didn't know how else to title this. I mean, I, titles are usually my most difficult part of a sermon. I asked the staff to help me with that. But this week it just hit me, the mathematics of love. Now you need to understand, I'm not really good at math. I can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. But you get beyond that, and I've got to have a calculator. I've got to have someone very smart that really does know math. Our second son is an architect, and he, I just marvel at the formulas that he uses and what he does in his work as an architect and his understanding of some of the higher concepts of math. But I think in the Scripture, we get a real simple explanation that works for people like me when it comes to mathematics. And so I want you to pray with me this morning, and then we're going to dive right into this. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for these wonderful graduates that we've had. I thank you for all of these young men, and I pray your richest blessings upon them and their good success in life. Lord, I pray that as they receive their cards and as they receive their gifts for graduation, that there will be many that will also write them encouraging notes about what they see in their lives, what they believe about them, Lord, so that they do well and accomplish your purposes that you have for them in life. And Father, I pray for all of us now as we come to the Word of the Lord. We need a word not only for ourselves, but for our children, Lord, who are watching on television the, the protest. But Lord, we also need a word to be able to share with our neighbors. And God, I'm thinking in particular about those who are watching with us, Lord, online that maybe are not followers of Christ yet and perhaps are wondering, does, does God have something to say? Does Woodland have something to say during this time? And Lord, because we are passionate followers of Jesus, your word always gives us something to say, to live, and how to have confidence, O oh Lord. So I pray for your special anointing for this morning. In your name I pray. And everybody out there said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, <clears throat> one of the great questions of life is, why do I exist? And I know when Becky and I were working in Europe, that was one of the questions that frequently would come up, whether I was on the Grand Place in Brussels or whether I was in Liège or whether I was in France. I remember sharing with people, that was a question that often would come up, why do we exist? 
I was praying with a group of people in Budapest, Hungary one time, and I was serving communion and praying for them in a local church there. And during the service, someone just wanted to talk to me about after the service because the message I had preached had been a message about how to receive Christ as your Savior. They just simply wanted to know what was the purpose? Why had God created them? Well, if you read your Bible, it's not a really difficult question to live. I mean, there are some times that people ask the question, how do I live a good life? And in America, we kind of expect to live a good life. There used to be advertisements on television every single day about living the good life, making choices to live the good life. And I think there's this subconscious thing in our society that we work each day to make each day a little better than yesterday. I, I know I do. I, I work every day to love God better, to love my children and my wife better, to love the church better. I, I work hard each day to be a better pastor or better neighbor. And so these things come into play in our life, and we simply kind of judge our success. If I'm doing better today than I was yesterday, then I'm being successful. Well, that's maybe not the best metric to use. The best metric, I think, to use is what God gives us in His Word, and that is to make love our aim. The Apostle Paul said that the goal of our instruction is love. John was very clear in his, not only his gospel, but his epistles, that God is love. Now, he didn't want us to make the, the mistake of thinking that love is God. C.S. Lewis says, if you make a God out of love, you've created a demon. And so, I think that logic can just about be applied to anything in life. If you make a God out of food and you become a glutton, you destroy your health and your ability to be helpful for anybody else. If you make God out of alcohol, you destroy your health and become dependent upon it and becomes a demon in your life. And the same thing with love. And yet, in our nation, I think in a lot of ways, we really don't understand what love is anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 4 it just simply says that we are to do everything we do in love. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about this with me this morning. What makes a church great? What does the devil hate? What do you look for in a mate? Why do you date? You know, what is the whole purpose of love? The whole purpose of love is, is that, we, that we, we find someone that we can share our lives with, that we find someone that we can give the best part of ourselves to. And I think that's what makes John 3.16 so powerful, is that God so loved, and I love the way John wrote that, God so loved. God wanted you and I to know He really, really loves us that He gave His only begotten Son. And I want to tell you something. It not only makes a church great, the devil hates it. It not only is why we date, it's not only why we, what we look for in a mate, but it is impossible to overrate love. It is just impossible to overrate love. As a matter of fact, there is a chapter that I'm frequently requested to read at a wedding. And when I'm doing it, I, I don't mind it at all. I, I love it when they request certain verses from the Bible uh, as I'm preparing my wedding message. But the most requested chapter, and I know you've probably already guessed it, and it's 1 Corinthians 13. And you know, I, something happened this morning that reminded me of, of my major in college. And I, one of the things that I learned studying in speech and communications was that 
you know, I'm not a great writer. I'm not a great orator, and I'm not saying that to elicit any compliments. I'm just saying that I recognize my limitations. And one of the things that I always wish that I had, it was the, the tongue of a poet. It was the pen of a poet. It was to be able to write ballads and lyrics and songs like Pastor Mark can write. My wife is a beautiful writer. My, my youngest son, Benjamin, is a very creative writer. When I read some of the things that Benjamin has written, I just kind of shake my head in wonder and say, God, why didn't you give me that gene? Why can't I write and express like that? But there is a book that I've often recommended to you, and I'll recommend again today, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And Lewis said something in that book that helped me to understand my limitation of those gifts. Because if I had the tongue of a poet, if I could write the ballads that some others do, then God would not be expressing His love through me the way that God wants to express His love. There is a quality of love in the Scripture that is so important. And so that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, I, I always tell couples this when I'm doing their wedding. I said, you need to know this. That chapter was written to a church that was in a mess. I mean, the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems. There were divisions. There was immorality. There was just... There, there, Paul said, your services are doing more harm than they're doing good. Oh, God, please never let that be said of Woodland Church, that our services do more harm than they do good. And, and yet they really glorified, they really gloried in spiritual gifts. And I mean, Paul didn't challenge them on that. They, they were a gifted congregation. But understand this, Paul wrote that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, to bring some order and to bring people back to the what they really needed, how they really needed to live. So let's look at that. It's in your app. Follow along with me if you want to. Let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Now that word there for way of life, it's our Greek, it's our, it's our English word hyperbole. So Paul is saying that he's going to show us a way of love that is off the charts. He's going to show us a way of love that is just over the top. So here we go. Let me show you a way of life that is best of all. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I had understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now, when I look at that, and Paul says, let me show you a way of life that is just totally off the charts. Let me show you a way of life that is more, better than anything you could imagine. And sometimes with students or teenagers, I'll say, tell me the best thing you can imagine in life. And with kids, it's always about ice cream, or it's always about a trip to Disney World, or Cedar Point, or something like that. It's when we imagine the very best things in life. So Paul says, let me show you the very best way to live. And then he says some amazing things. He says, if I know everything, you know what, and I don't love, it means nothing. If I give everything I have, but I'm not doing it out of love, it means nothing. 
Paul says, if I understand everything, if I give everything, if I possess everything, no matter what it is, nothing in your life means anything unless you really know how to love and not only how to give love, but how to receive love. In January of this year, our nation was on a roll. Our economy was, boy, was it the envy of the world. I can remember talking to a couple of people who are very experienced. As a matter of fact, they have economics degrees and master's degrees and that. And I can remember talking to them over the holidays as I was greeting people that I know. And they're saying, look, our nation right now, our economy is the envy of the whole wide world. As a matter of fact, there were some people that were afraid that the economy of America was so strong that maybe it was going to hurt the rest of the world economy. None of us would have imagined what life would have been like as it's been for the last two months because we were on a such a roll. And recently as I was praying and thinking about the difference, and I, always, I, I actually went all the way back and was looking at photographs that I had made with my iPhone of my family and the holidays, pictures I'd made around here at the church and looked at some of the things that I was planning for this summer. There was a question that came across my mind and I thought to myself, I wonder if America realized that God was blessing us to be a blessing. And rather than being a blessing, perhaps we were not using what God had given us to bless others with but we were accumulating more and more for ourselves. We were more worried as a country about ourselves and our security and, and taking care of us. But you see, when God blesses you, when God blesses me, when God blesses a congregation or when God blesses a nation, He blesses us in order to be a blessing. You see, the Bible says and, and that one of the things that matters most in life that we have to know, and I just threw my notes off the page here. Let me get it back. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, the Bible says if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing is this, faith expressing itself in love. Now, that's not in your outline, so you may want to just jot that down, Galatians 5, 6. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing, and I'm reading it, is faith expressing itself in love. And so, as I prayed and thought about the, the riots, the protest, as I thought about the coronavirus, it just dawned on me that what the Lord was saying to us was we've really got to learn how to be great lovers. And I don't mean that in the way the world means it. I mean that in the way that the Scripture means it. Because nothing I say, nothing I believe, nothing I give, nothing I accomplish, nothing I know, nothing I understand, none of that matters unless I learn how to love according to the Scriptures. And sometimes you might be tempted to ask yourself, why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you need it. You need to be loved. I need to be loved. Every one of us need to be loved. Whoever you are, there's this great sense in us that we need it. You need more love. And you need to give love because you need to give away love. And the more you give away love, the more love you will receive. God will pour back into your life. People will pour back into your life. If you will give more love, you'll become more fruitful. And if you learn how to love and to give the way God calls us to love and to give of our time, our talent, and our treasure, God will give 
back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over without measure. He will ease the budget of your time. He will ease the budget of your finances. He will make you more fruitful in every single thing you do. And so, as I've studied and read the book of First and Second Corinthians over and over and over again, and I'm hoping that that's going to be the book that I can just kind of just come to before long and preach through. One of the things that I've come to believe is that spiritual gifts are not the issue, but love and holiness is the issue. Spiritual gifts are not the issue. And I will say this to you. After reading and studying 1 Corinthians for years, spiritual gifts are not a mark of holiness. Spiritual gifts are a sign of God's power in our lives. Now, let me kind of just give you an illustration of that. <clears throat> my dad could grow anything. We were often fond of saying, my dad can make a dead stick grow. I've seen him put sticks in the ground and take care of it, and they actually begin to sprout. I don't have that gene either, by the way. But daddy could make anything grow. But people never came out to look at daddy's tools. They always wanted to see what daddy was growing. They always wanted to see the harvest of what daddy was growing. And friend, I want you to know something this morning. My dad was never happier than when he was in his gardens. I can remember he took five acres one time and he planted it all in just one crop. And as he worked those, those rows and I would be out there with him, I, the, the happiness on his face, I can see him whether it was scratching in potatoes or whether it was going down to help my Uncle Albert on his farm. My dad was never happier except when he was gardening and he was in the fields and doing things of that nature. It's where he just really thrived at. And I want you to know that you and I, we're God's vineyard. We're God's garden. As a matter of fact, one theologian refers to Jesus as the, excuse me, as God the Father as the master gardener. Another theologian returns, refers to, to God as the master vineyard keeper. Well, it's easy for me to think in concepts like that because of my father, but the older I've gotten and the longer I've pastored, it's easy for me to think about that with the church as well because it's not the tools, it's the fruit. And one of the other things as we break this down this morning is spiritual gifts run the danger of making you proud. I've seen that happen in too many people's lives. Education runs the danger of making you proud. I've seen that happen in too many people's lives. Denominationalism can make you proud. I've seen that happen in too many people's lives. One day, all of the gifts, all the education, all the money, all of the denominations, they will be gone. But what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that will last forever, it's love. And when you and I walk through the gates of death, my prayer is that every one of us will follow through in the bloody footprints of Jesus Christ, where Jesus, after dying on that cross, descended and defeated death, hell, and the grave for you and me. And my prayer is that we'll walk through that, and it will no longer be our degrees or our finances, our education, or our race that matters. What matters more than anything is did we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and did we love our neighbor as ourself? On my deathbed, I'm going to tell you, it's not 
my spiritual gifts that are going to bring comfort to me. On my deathbed, it's not going to be my finances that bring comfort to me. On my deathbed, I think I'm going to be just like the Apostle Paul. The one thing I want to be known for is that I loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I loved my neighbors. I love myself. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. He says, I fear, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Friends, the older I get, the better I want to get at loving. I don't want to get bitter, but the older I get, the better I want to get at loving. So here's God's mathematics. Everything, your finances, your education, what you know, what you understand, everything minus love equals nothing, equals zero. So you can possess everything, but if you don't, if you don't love, your bank account is empty. Your emotional bank account is empty. Your eternal account is empty. And see, in the Bible, love is not a feeling. And, I, and, and, and I've read so many books. As a matter of fact, I kind of got tickled. I went through my library, both my physical library and my, my Kindle and a library, and I was stunned at how many books I've read over the years on love. And I would thought to myself, after reading all these books on love, you think I'd be a better lover than what I am. You see, love, our world defines love as a feeling. As a matter of fact, I read the lyrics of a lot of recent songs. Love doesn't even figure in the lyrics of those songs anymore. It's all about lust. I don't think our world really understands love. And if they do, it's a Hollywood romanticized version where we feel in love, and as long as we feel in love, we love. But when we stop feeling that love, or as I used to say as a youth pastor, when, when your liver doesn't quiver anymore, then maybe you're not in love. Well, that's just chemicals. I was talking to someone yesterday, and they said the psychologist friend of theirs told them that love is nothing more than a chemical reaction. Nothing could be further from the truth. Don't you ever buy that line of garbage and if that psychologist truly believes that, then he is a very misled man misleading many other people. I'm not denying there are chemical reactions. I'm telling you, when I see my wife, there's a chemical reaction. I, I, I'm so thankful for that. When I see my children and my grandchildren, there's a different chemical reaction. When I see you as a church, there's a chemical reaction. I'm not denying that. But chemicals don't last, love does. And I know I just butchered the king's English there. Chemicals do not last, but love lasts. It's, it's that thing that is eternal. And here's the difference. The word the Bible uses for love is agape. You see, we're, it's kind of unfortunate in English. We don't have enough words to describe love. You know, <clears throat> when you go to other cultures, the language is so much more romantic. It's so much more, it's the, the beauty of other languages. But you know, in America, we can love our car, we can love our toothpaste, we can love our food. C.S. Lewis in that book I just recommended to you, in the very first chapter, he says, you know, as children, we were reprimanded if we ever said, oh, I love strawberries. And who of us haven't said that? But our parents wanted to teach us the difference between loving something and liking something. And the word the Bible uses is the word agape. You see, in Greek, there are four different kinds of words for love. 
And I'm not going to take time to go into all of those today. I will in the future. But the word agape, well, that's a divine source of love. I mean, that's a selfless love. That's where you continue to love whether you receive anything back or not. It's whether, no matter whether you're loved back the way God loves us, when we were his enemies, Christ still died for us. When we hated God, God still loved us. When we tried to hurt God with our sins, God still loved us. You see, love is a command. It's a choice. It's a commitment that we make. Well, here's how I'd like to apply that. Number one, love is a verb that acts for the good of others. Love is a verb that acts for the good of others. A number of years ago, I preached a series here called Verb, and it was a series from the book of Proverbs, and I've often wanted to come back to that, <clears throat> but this is one of the things that I talked about in that series, is that Proverbs teaches us that love is an action. Now, I want to go through several verses of Scripture here kind of quickly, so I want you to notice, and they should be underlined in your outline so that you get it, but I want you, if you're using your Bible or if you have the ability to highlight on your iPad, would you just kind of highlight these, these, this little phrase I'll point out to you. Let's look at Psalms 107, verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him take note of these things. Let them consider the Lord's acts of royal love. Circle that. The Lord's acts of loyal love. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Every parent can understand that. Every husband and wife can understand that. And it's God's goal that we understand that is the way we live for one another in the body of Christ it's the way we live for one another for, with our neighbors, whether they're followers of Jesus or not. We pour our lives out in acts of love. That's how we know that love is taking place. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Now, I'm real good. Listen, I am really good at thinking of ways that you can Show your love to me with acts of love. I am so good at that. I can just stand here right now and my mind, my imagination can just go over time. What I have learned to do is those very things that I want done unto me, I want to do what Jesus said in the golden rule. I want to turn those into acts of love for other people as well. Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. Let's think of ways, excuse, think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So get creative with your thinking. Now, let's just look at a few more things before I, I, I want to tell you the story, a biblical story I think will help us get this better. Number one, Jesus said, this is how people are going to know that you're my followers. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Now think about that. The world doesn't know that I'm Jesus' follower by my doctrine, as important as that may be. The world doesn't know that I'm a follower of Jesus by my good life, as important as that may be. The world doesn't know that I'm a follower of Jesus by my charitable contributions, as important as that may be. What the world can easily identify that your lives and my lives are different 
is that we love one another. In a world of divisions, in a world of immorality, in a world of confusion, in a world intrigued by power and wealth, like the Corinthian church was, if we allow that worldly spirit into the church, then our churches will become what Paul said, they'll do more harm than they do good. But if we can love God, and if we can love each other, and if we can love our neighbor, friends, that's the greatest witness that we can give. Now, Jesus, to illustrate this, he tells the story of a good Samaritan. You're all familiar with that. It's a part, you know, I, I read... Uh, Back during the year when the King James Version Bible was being celebrated for the 400th anniversary of all of the parts of the Bible that are just part of our culture that we take for granted. And I remember the author in the, in the Wall Street Journal piece I was reading said, a lot of people don't even know it comes from the Bible. But the Good Samaritan is a part of our culture. And the story of the Good Samaritan is a story of racism. There is a man, he's going to do some business and obviously, he's a Jewish man from the way the story is being told. And there is a priest that sees him. And when he sees the man, let's look at this verse together. It so happened that a priest was going down that road. But when he saw the man, the man that had been robbed, the man that had been beat up, the man that was left laying in a ditch to die, when he saw the man, he walked on by on the other side. What was the problem? The priest was too busy. The priest was busy, and if he'd have helped that man, he would have been unclean. He was on his way, to, you know, probably to the temple to, to do what I'm doing this morning. He was going to, to serve the Lord. He was going to serve the people of Israel. And yet, when he saw this man suffering and dying, it didn't dawn on him that his agenda was not as important as taking care of and helping this man. Well, there's a Levite. Levites were kind of like the assistant pastors. They helped the priests with their jobs. In the same way, a Levite also came along, and he went over. I mean, look at this. He went over and looked at the man, and then he walked on by on the other side. I mean, this guy is curious. He goes, wow, i got to check this out. And so he goes over, and he looks down, and he goes, oh, dude, you're in bad shape. I mean, don't we do that on the highway? I mean, we slow down and we're trying to look at the accident that's happened on either side of us, and, but we keep going. Or maybe we see somebody broken down. I can remember. Let me tell you a funny story. I can remember a story. My first year living in Michigan, I was out riding my mountain bike, and we have no mountains, so I was out riding my mountain bike, and I was about 12 miles away from home. And I thought to myself, my chain broke, and I didn't have a spare chain with me to put on my bike. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, somebody will stop and pick me up. I mean, in Georgia, if you're walking a bike, some, some fellow's going to stop with a pickup truck and offer to, to help you out. And to illustrate this, a few years ago, Ben and I got stuck on the side of the road, and, and uh, he said, Dad, you want me to call the tow truck driver because we have AAA? And I said, no. I said, in a few minutes, somebody will stop, and they'll pull us out. And he says, how do you know? I said, this is Georgia. So sure enough, in just a few minutes, pickup truck pulled up. Fella got out and said, can I help you? And I said, if you could give me a pull, I'd appreciate it pulled me right out of the mud, wouldn't let me pay him, and we just kind of, you know, shared a few moments with each other, you know, what I did, what he did. We were both followers of Jesus, and I was so thankful. Here's why I'm telling you that story. I had to walk 12 miles back, 
And I think a thousand pickup trucks passed me by. And when I finally got home, my wife was worried, my kids were worried, and I just said to them, we ain't in Georgia no more. All these trucks passed me by and nobody offered to, to pick me up. You see, we live lives of busyness and we can be very curious to watch what's going on. But if we're not careful, we become indifferent. And this Levite was indifferent to the pain and the hurt. And I have to be honest. <clears throat> Friends, I'll tell you, I have been one of those who have said, you know, things are so much better for African Americans than they were in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And yet there is an underlying current of pain. And there's an underlying current of hurt and anger. I've become more sensitized over the years as I shared with you uh, this week in our daily update and Wednesday night in the service about our nephew, uh, whom, Vincent, whom we love so much that uh, my brother and sister-in-law adopted when he was a baby, who was a black man, and what it was like for him when he moved to America to live with us for a year. It's become different as I've sat with black parents who have told me about how they've warned their children, told them things I've never had to tell my children because they're white, and how they've warned their children to be careful. I shared with you how Vincent had the police called on him because he was in the wrong neighborhood. Listen to this. The wrong neighborhood because he was black. And it turned out that's where he lived. You see, that's the pain. And we cannot be indifferent to those that are hurting. It doesn't justify violence. It does, doesn't justify looting. It doesn't justify burning. And I have been so impressed with the African-American leaders and the protesters who have distanced themselves from those that have taken advantage of the pain to break into a Target store or into a Nike store and said, no, this is not what this is about. But we cannot be indifferent. So I've been asking God, help me to love better and help me to listen better but help me to be like the Samaritan. Look at verse 33 of Luke 10. But the Samaritan who was traveling that way came upon the man, and when he saw him, his heart was filled with pity. The Samaritan was compassionate. And compassion means you feel what somebody else is going through. And I will never pretend that I can stand in the shoes of somebody that is Hispanic or is black or is Oriental. I will never pretend that living in this society. But racism is not just endemic to America. We have very dear friends that we love. We're missionaries to Japan. And they could not tell the Japanese that their daughter was adopted because of the rejection that she would have received from the culture. Every culture has racism. Don't ever mistake that. Every culture, I'm not justifying the racism in America, so don't misunderstand me. Every culture has racism. It's one of the things that I've talked about with people in other cultures, and I've had the good fortune and so privileged to be able to preach around the world. Racism is part of every culture. But racism should never, look at me, racism should never be a part of the culture of the church or anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ. If that is in our hearts, we are not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love God completely means that we love others as well. So 
we're not going to stop, but I wanted to put my growth work with the points this week. So what would it look like for you to love? And you need to fill in the name, the blank there. What would it look like? And maybe the person the Lord will put onto your heart, maybe that person is close to you. Maybe that person is another race than you are. Maybe that person is an enemy. Maybe that person is a neighbor. But what would it look like for you to love them? And then make a list of your acts of love. Make a list of the things. Think about things you would like for people to do for you. And some of the things that I, would, that I like for people to do for me, others might not like for them. So you, you really need to then start thinking about what would this person like. Make a list of how you could show that you love them this week. And then ask yourself the question, what are the enemies of love in your life? And I have to be honest, in my life, it can really be busyness and it can be indifference. It's the reason I refuse to tell people I'm busy. I just don't ever want to be known as the busy pastor. I don't want to be known as the busy husband or the busy dad or the busy anybody. But what can be the difference? I, I, I have to be honest with you. I can be indifferent. When I drive by and look at an accident, and I know I've got to keep going. And I just, have, you know, have learned sometimes I can help. and Sometimes I, the best help I can do is pray and make a phone call. But here's the thing. For me, those are two real points that Jesus makes in the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, number two, let's look at this. Love plus nothing equals everything. Now, I know you're saying, now, Pastor, that math doesn't work. Oh, yes, it does. You know what? Now, if I was teaching on faith, I would say faith times zero equals nothing. But faith times one equals infinity. But when it comes to love, God shows us that God loves when there's no love given in return. And God still is this creative, eternal God. And you and I are sons and daughters of Christ. I, I have a very close friend whose dad was a CIA field officer. I mean, he was a real live James Bond. He was a real live licensed to kill individual. And he was one of these individuals that I got to know later in his life and spend some time in his home and talk to and have conversations with. And, and his son is one of my very dearest and closest friends. I love him and his wife and his children. I'm so grateful for them. But one of the things this guy, this CIA field officer that I just mentioned to you, one of the things that his son told me one time, he says, my dad would tell us several times a day that he loved us. To the point, he said, told me one time, he says, Pastor, he said, as a kid, I would get tired of it. And before my dad would even start, I, he said, I'd throw my hands up and go, I know, Dad, I know, Dad, you love me. And he said, I never realized what a sacrifice that was for a man like my dad to remind himself several times a day that he loved me, to make those calls, to call me at school, to check up on me and to tell me he loved me. He says, I never really knew everything my dad did. You see, God makes you capable of love in ways that you would never dream of. Even when you don't receive love back, that agape love motivates you to give. That agape love motivates you to share. And the more you give, God causes that to be multiplied in your life. Let's look at this passage. It's a little lengthy, but we're going to read this whole passage together from 1 John chapter 3, and verse 16. 
We know what real love is because Jesus gave up His life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, he's too busy, he's too indifferent, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other, but let's show the truth by our actions, by acts of love. Let's show the truth by our actions. Our actions, our acts of love, will show that we belong to the truth. So, now this word so is real important. We will be confident. Oh, I want to be confident. We will be confident that when we stand before God, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and He knows everything. Hallelujah. Isn't that a powerful passage? And I have to be honest with you. I, you know, there were a lot of things when I was younger I was confident about. And as I've gotten older, I'm no longer as confident about those things as I once was. There was a lot of things that I was very decisive upon. It's part of my DNA. It's part of my nature that I was very decisive upon. And I'm no longer as decisive upon. But there are some things that haven't wavered. And that's my understanding of God's love for me. That's my understanding of God's love for lost people. That's my understanding of God's plan to perfect His church. That's my understanding of who Jesus Christ is, the virgin-born, eternal, sin, sinless Son of God. I, my confidence has grown in who God is. My confidence has grown in the Bible. My confidence has grown in the presence of His Holy Spirit in my life and the power that the baptism of the Holy Spirit brings. My confidence has grown in a place called heaven and a place to shun called hell. My confidence has grown in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again one day. You see, confidence increases the more you understand the love of God. But some of those things I was real confident about, they fall into the wayside. Some of those things I was real decisive about, and that's not the point of this message, they fall into the wayside. But even if everything else was shaken, and when I stand in the presence of Christ, as I've told you so many times, I will have nothing to plead but the blood of Jesus and His righteousness and this, that I know God loves me. And friend, God loves you. So now can I add a little, another formula to that? God times your love equals possibilities unlimited in your life. God times your love back to God, back to other people, equals possibilities that are unlimited. Look at me. For with God, all things are possible. But with man, many things are impossible. I've been a pastor for a very long time. I've seen this lived out in so many lives. I've seen it here in our church. When a wife of a husband, and I have people in my mind as I'm telling you these stories, when the wife of a husband is diagnosed with a disease and he sacrifices everything to take care of her, to be sure that every need is taken care of with dignity and with respect. I've stood in the 
care centers with the husbands of wives and the wives of husbands when no longer their loved one, their spouse could be at home and there they stand by their side to take care of and to love them. And sometimes that person, if their mind has been altered by a stroke or if their mind has been altered by a psychological breakdown, I've watched this person endure. I've watched these men and these women endure hateful comments, swearing, uh, abusive behavior, and yet continue to love, tears in their eyes. We've slipped to the chapel or we've slipped out of my car and we've prayed together and we've held hands together and we've agreed that God would just make them even more fruitful in their love. I've watched husbands and wives who've had to carry one another and care for each other in ways that I knew their spouse would never want them to have to care for them. But they've done it because of love, not because of guilt. I've also had the unfortunate, and I mean unfortunate, tragedy to watch people who said, I didn't sign up for this. To watch people walk out of marriages. To watch people walk out of relationships because their love was about what I could get back. That's not agape. That may be eros. That may be Philadelphia. Eros is where we get our erotic love from. Philadelphia is our brotherly love. But it is not the agape love of God. And you see... This is how God loves you. This is how God loves me. This is why I'm confident in life. And my beloved brother and sister, I want to say to you this morning, I know people who've lived this out and walked this out in caring and loving ways. Let's look at John chapter 13 and verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So let me ask you this morning, who's your brother and sister? Well, the Good Samaritan teaches us this. Our brother, our sister, our neighbor, it's everybody. My neighbor may not be my brother in Christ, but he's still my neighbor that I'm supposed to love. What is God asking or who is God asking you to give time or attention or to give your help to? Pray about that this week. Who is God asking you to help Who is God asking you to give some time? Maybe it'll be just simply picking up your phone and making a call. Maybe it'll be writing a card. Maybe it'll be just say, hey, can I stop by and just visit in the front yard, you know, socially distanced during this time. And then I'm going to ask you this. When was God patient with you? When was God patient with you? And how can you be patient with one another? You see, as we continue to look at this for the next few weeks, one of the things that I want you to know is love is patient. And even if right now you're bucking at some of this or you say, I don't get this, I don't understand this, how am I going to be able to do this? God is patient with you. And the reason you've listened to this message this morning is maybe so God can search your heart. And especially if you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you've listened all the way to this point, God has been patient with you and brought you to this day where you could just simply say, God, I want to know your love. He loves you, but you just don't know it yet. Or maybe you know it here, but you haven't gotten it here. Maybe you know it here and it doesn't move you. You see, love will move you. It will move you to acts of compassion. It will move you to acts of kindness. It will move you to acts of time and service and giving. Love will move you. 
Love will stir you. Love will strengthen you. But not the love the world gives, but the love that God gave to you and He gave to me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to pray with me this morning. If you'll just bow your head and close your eyes there, just so you can focus upon the Lord. And right now, I want you to think about this. If the end of your life, and I'm not trying to press you, I'm not trying to scare you, I just want you to be like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, this is so important to love that he himself didn't want to become a castaway. He didn't want to be disqualified. But if this today was to be the end of your life, and again, I'm not trying to frighten you, I just want you to listen. I only want you to do this if you're ready to do this. Would you be confident to stand before God? Are you really confident that nothing exists when this life is over? Are you really confident that you're just going to be buried and that's it? Are you going to go against the wisdom of the Bible? Are you going to go against the wisdom of all the cultures that believe in some sort of life after death? Are you confident in the false religion that maybe, and, and I don't mean to be rude, but the religion you've been following that's told you you can be saved by your works or uh, the religion that maybe you'll get another chance in life and you'll be reincarnated? Are you really confident in that? Or something clicking in your heart right now that you know that God loves you? And I'm telling you, you may have been turned off to the gospel because of a messy church. Every church is messy. And this church, Woodland Church, it is a church that loves God and loves each other. But we still got our messes too that we have to work on. But I'm confident of this, that when I stand before God, it will be because of what Jesus has done for me and because I know, I know He loves me. I want you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, there are people right now that are listening. And maybe they're followers of you, but they realize that they've become too busy, too indifferent, maybe too proud of their accomplishments, their education, what they've given. Maybe in some subtle way, Lord, they begin to lean upon their achievements rather than the love and mercy of God. And Father, I'm also confident there are people listening this morning that haven't even clicked on that they're watching and they're not followers of yours yet. And yet something is happening, Holy Spirit, in their heart. They know this is true. They know that God loves them. And they know there's something separating them from you. And that's their lack of faith in Christ. It's their lack of trusting Him to forgive their sins. So I'm asking you to help us all pray this prayer together. Whether you're a passionate follower of Jesus or whether you're not, would you pray this prayer with me? Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace and the eternal love that you have given to me through Christ Jesus. Thank you that through Christ's sufferings and His death upon the cross, my sins have been paid for. 
I don't understand it all. But as much as I know how, I ask you, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and make me a brand new creation in Christ. I love you, Lord. I can hardly believe I can say these words, but something is happening inside of me right now. I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. And I give you my whole life today in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Friends, I hope every one of you prayed that prayer with me this morning. And if you prayed that for the very first time to give your heart to Jesus Christ, or maybe you recommitted your heart to Jesus Christ, <clears throat> please send me an email here at office at woodland.church. I, I have a, a, a whole lot of things I'd love to send you just to help you get started with your new walk in Christ, your new life in Christ. And don't worry, we're not going to inundate your mailbox. If you'd like to get email from us or you'd like to get text messages from us, you'll let us know that and I'll be happy to do it. But we just want to give you the, help you get the best start you can in your walk with Christ. And by the way, Pastor Corey's already asked you to give, but if you haven't given yet, would you join me this morning? Today is our Mission Sunday as well. And so, uh, can they still see me on the camera? Or is it the screen up right now? Oh, let me be seen on the camera. Okay, so I, what I'd like you to do is just take your phone this morning and as an act together of worship. Let's give our tithes, let's give our offerings, or go to your computer, and if you would as well, you could click online there at our woodland.church site. You can click give. But today is Mission Sunday, and so I'm asking everybody, whatever you can do, let's do something. Our missionaries are hurting. I'm getting reports of missionaries, and it's understandable that their, their, their income, their, their, their pledge support is, is dropping, and we want to step up and meet as much of a need there as we can through Woodland. But help us today with a very generous missions offering that is above your tithes. The tithes come to help us continue our ministry in the local church. And I'm so proud of the many, many ways Woodland has been involved in our community. But we also want to keep our missions program going strong as well. So join me there. The slide's going to come up again so you can see all the different ways that you can give. I'm grateful for you for watching. I'm grateful if you, if you sponsored a watch party. I'm so thankful for our graduates. God bless you. Next year, we've got to have some girls graduating as well, you know. What a shame if there's no pretty girls for these guys to be able to meet here at Woodland Church. So let's be sure that next year that we're graduating some young ladies as well. I love you. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. I got a couple of staff members shaking their head at me. Listen, the local church is the best place to meet your future spouse. I just want to say that real clearly. The local church is the best place to meet your future spouse because you know their families and they know your family. God bless you. I love you.